brought to you by Penguin. I mean, for example, I know, I remember this, the day my father died, I was due that evening to give an afternoon speech somewhere because I, over the years, earned my living a lot doing afternoon speaking and hosting award ceremonies. And I thought, well, that's what I do. That's what you do. The show goes on. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanayaka. Here we invite authors to discuss their writing habits, their inspirations, and what drives them to create the works we end up pulling off the bookshop shelf. We also ask each interviewee to bring with them a selection of objects that have had an impact on their writing in some way. And I'm intrigued to find out how some Victorian hair restorer, a green carnation and a specific teddy bear have influenced today's guest and his work. I'm joined by a man who spent more than 50 years in the public eye. On screen, you'll recognise him from everything from Good Morning Britain in the 1980s to the current series of Celebrity Gogglebox. Fans of the wireless will recognise his dulcet tones from long-running shows such as Just a Minute or his award-winning podcast, Something Rhymes with Purple, which, of course, he presents with Susie Dent. If politics is your bag, then his name will be familiar as a former government whip and Conservative MP for Chester. But it's on the page where my guest today has been most prolific counting among his personal back catalogue, multiple works of historical fiction, numerous biographies of everyone from a clown to a recent account of the Duke of Edinburgh's life. A whole host of books celebrating language and poetry and, most importantly, out this month, his first set of memoirs entitled Odd Boy Out. More on that later, but for now, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the Penguin podcast, the entertainer, writer, teddy bear collector and the poster boy, for vibrant knitwear, Giles Brandreth. Hello, Giles. Well, what an introduction, Neil. Thank you so much. I'm honoured to be here with you at Penguin. It's wonderful to be published by a Penguin imprint, uh, Michael Joseph, who first published a book of mine, I think, back in the 1970s. This is the 50th anniversary, I think, of my first book. Why now? Why an autobiography? of all of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of words that you've written over the last half century, do you decide at this point, I want to delve deeply into myself? I didn't. I didn't want to delve deeply into myself. Uh, the fact that I did is entirely as a result of my wife. The only reason the book was written was lockdown. This year, almost everybody I know, you may be the only person I know who hasn't done a childhood memoir. Everybody I meet, everybody of my generation, spent lockdown writing a childhood memoir. What happened was this. March, February, March last year, when lockdown was imminent, I was due to open in a show in the West End called I Remember It Well. The show was to star the great Dame Judi Dench, and she and I were to be in conversation, talking about celebrating her career. Then I was due to go on tour myself in my own show called Break a Leg, about theatre all over the country. Suddenly, Dame Judy in isolation. Tour cancelled. Diary empty. My publisher said, well, look, you're sitting there. You can't go out to do research on a book. Why don't tell us your story? And then my wife came into the room the next day and I said, I'm, I'm writing a new book. And to us, she said, oh, no, 
Giles, does the world need another book by you, really? Honestly. Because what's it going to be about? It's going to be about me. Oh, she said, oh, that's a good title. Why don't you call it Me, Me, Me? She said, that's been the story of her life anyway. She said, well, who's going to be interested in your memoirs? I said, not so much memoirs. I said, memories. I said, maybe things that I remember that'll maybe trigger memories in other people. She then said to me, what, what's your first memory? And I was quite struck by that because we've been together since 1968. So we've been together for more than 50 years. And I don't think she ever asked me what my first memory was. And I told her, I said, I think it was probably the coronation, watching the coronation on television, standing close to the screen. And my sister was telling me to get out of the way because I was a little baby boy. She said, oh, that's marvellous. First paragraph, we've got you and the Queen, nose to nose. I said, it won't be that sort of a book. She said, look, pull back on the name dropping. Don't do too much about Oscar Wilde. Don't fall back on all the things that you normally talk about. If you're going to do this book, try and work out why you are who you are. And so what the book has ended up being, it's called Odd Boy Out. It's ended up being really a book that is relevant, I hope, to anyone. Who has made you the person you are? Anyone listening to this? What formed you? And what I discovered writing this book was the the source of who I am, which is my forebears. My par- I am formed by my heritage, by my parents' expectation of me, and by my childhood. That's what ma- has made me the person I am. And my wife, Michelle, said to me, gosh, you know, I don't think you've ever left your childhood, have you? And I don't think I ever have. She said, your childhood's cast this terribly long shadow over your life. And I said, I don't think so. I think, actually, I've been in the sunshine of my childhood all my life. And what I've discovered at the end of this book is that the life I've lived from the age of 21 is really the life I grew up into before the age of 21. So it's a childhood memoir, and it's also, I think, it ended up being, I didn't know what it was going to be when I began it, it's ended up being a letter of thanks and, in some ways, apology to my parents, to both of them, but to my father in particular. And it ends, really, when with my father's death. He died when he was only 71, younger, actually, than I am now. So it's a book about childhood, family life, and what makes us who we are. In writing Odd Boy Out and, I'll repeat the phrase, diving deeply into yourself... Did it in any way force you to recalibrate what you thought about yourself or indeed what you thought about your own childhood? I quite consciously avoid introspection. I'm not a very introspective person. Um, I, I, I believe in sort of looking up and looking out. I didn't really want to be introspective, but I suppose I've ended up being introspective by giving an account of my life and the people who have influenced me, the people I've admired and liked. But I think what I've done is I creep. I mean, I I tell the story and I'm there, but I don't think I've held a mirror up to myself and said, this is me. I've I've simply said, this is is what happened. And I haven't recalibrated as a result of it. I think I'm clearer. I think from my wife's point of view, it's a bit alarming because I think it is true that everything that I do now are things that I began to do as a child, from innocent things like dressing up. I was today, on this morning, wearing a funny jumper. I'm still dressing up. I remember as a little boy, I I loved 
dressing up. I, I, I almost the first part I played was in the Scouts. I played Alice at the sketch of the A. A. Milne poem. They're changing guards at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. I played Alice, yeah, uh, and because I, I had my own nurse's uniform as a little boy, I had lots of costumes. Anyway, only recently I was playing Lady Bracknell in The Importance of Being Earnest. So I'm basically still doing what I was doing when I was a child. When I was a child, I wrote, when I was 10, believe it or not, at school, I began writing a biography of William Shakespeare. Good grief. Can you imagine such a ridiculous, precocious child? It wasn't very... I found it the other day because I've kept everything. It was not very good. But the point is, I'm still writing biographies. I wrote for the school magazine and I write for the newspapers. Everything I did as a child, I'm still doing. And I don't mind that. I've had a wonderful life um, and I'm very, very lucky. And I've met a lot of fascinating people along the way. Did you find delving into introspection more comfortable than perhaps you imagined it would be? Or were there moments where you found it quite uncomfortable? I don't think I would have done it unless it had been a professional engagement. Right. I think I would have regarded it probably as self-indulgent. My wife says to me, Giles, you're one of these men who only think you're only validated by what you do. You think your work gives you worth. And uh, I work all the time. Is she right? Is that summary, is that analysis of you is spot on? Yes. Yes, it probably, it probably is. There are quite considerable dangers to that, isn't there? If work, and it hasn't for you, but if work dries up, then suddenly that self-doubt, am I good enough, imposter syndrome, all of that can creep in. Oh, well, I, well, well of course, I, I have all of those things. But the, right. the great joy for me of my life has been variety, doing a whole... One of the reasons people can't say, don't say, oh, what this is what he is, is because I do lots of different things. When my children were small in the 70s and 80s, I wrote lots of children's books. And I could have just been a children's writer, which I would have loved to do. I loved writing children's books. But because I wanted to do different things... My wife says to me, Giles, for you, when one door closes, it's shut. And I say, you're right, but there's a room in, with many doors, and I then pop out of another one. And that's been the blessing for me. And I think many of my projects, the things I get involved in, uh, some are profitable, some are not profitable. They're all of them interesting to me at the time. Many of them are fun. Many of them are what other people regard as hobbies. But because there are lots of them, I'm spinning different plates. And if one plate falls over, well, there we are, move on to another. Uh, so I think I protect myself against what you're talking about by having a variety of things to do. But when I was eight or nine or ten, I went to a boarding school where the headmaster was a lovely old gentleman called Mr Stocks. He was in his 80s, headmaster of the school. And remember two things he ever said to me. One was, keep that Latin accurate. The other thing that he said to me, busy people are happy people. Be busy. I go on your way. And I've remembered that all my whole life. Busy people are happy people. And on the whole, that's what I have found. Of course, I know I've been blessed in the things that I've been able to do have been interesting and amusing. There are people who are busy doing monotonous jobs. I know that. Um, but I've been very lucky. Uh, and one of the things I've been busiest at doing is writing books. What aspect of your personality do you think is, I guess, the most widely removed from the public perception of you? That I'm a quiet person uh, and that I'm happiest uh, sitting uh, 
in the back of our local Starbucks with a cup of tea because they don't drink coffee and a notebook. And I can spend a whole day in there and they're very tolerant of me. I like, believe it or not, being quiet. And that would seem to people strange because I know some people, they come around to our house. I think I can see them as they press the doorbell. I think they're dreading, oh God, he's not going to be jolly, is he? Um, because I'm, I'm, I'm naturally optimistic. I'm somebody who sees a glass half full rather than half empty. But people who see the glass half full, they know that the other half is empty. Um, we just prefer to see the glass that's half full. We know, you know, into my life, though I'm being very lucky, but still. And that that's, in a sense, what may surprise the people about the book, because I put in fun and funny stories, I've told anecdotes, but I can't get away from the fact that, well, my father died, but young. My mother, of course, died eventually, but I had a sister who died, a brother who died, my best friend from school died all at the same time. And so in my life, too, there have been downs as well as ups. So I think the surprise would be, actually, he's happiest when he's not talking. Like everybody, you'd have to be singularly blessed to go through life without suffering loss. Being reticent to look within yourself at times like that, when now we live in times, Giles, where men especially are encouraged to talk about how they feel and to emote, to use modern terminology. Looking back on those moments where you did go through loss and that you did feel that pain of loss, how did you process that? Because by your own admission, you're not one for self-reflection. In many ways, uh, there's a lot to be said for the stiff upper lip. It has served me well. And I very much admire people of the generation of Prince Philip, my father's generation, who didn't talk about their emotions or feelings, who didn't belong to the hug you generation, had feelings, but didn't necessarily express them. I personally, how have I coped with these things? Well, I've just got on with life. I mean, for example, I know, I remember this, the day my father died, I was due that evening to um, give an after-dinner speech somewhere because I, over the years, earned my living a lot doing after-dinner speaking and hosting award ceremonies. And I thought, well, that's what I do. That's what you do. You just, the show goes on. I went to work and that was good. I was pleased to be going to work. And when I was, as it were, mid-performance... I think um, I probably did think about my father and thought, yeah, I think you'd approve of this. Um, I'm, I'm doing my thing at this moment. Doesn't mean to say that I wasn't, of course, then privately sad. So I think, in a way, I hope I haven't been totally... I mean, I'm, I'm always busy, and sometimes I'm a busy fool. I know that. But I think I've just processed life by getting on with life. I became a friend of somebody called, who I went to see, a psychiatrist called Anthony Clare, wonderful man, wrote a, a book based on his radio series in the psychiatrist's chair, which I think was published by Penguin. And there's been a biography of him published this year. He became a friend of mine, a lovely, wise man. And I went to see him after my father died and when I had all these bereavements, I'd had to talk about happiness. And together we worked on sort of rules about what 
to be happy, how to be happy. And one of his rules was break the mirror. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, uh, break the mirror, stop thinking about yourself. Won't give you seven years bad luck, give you seven years longer life. Happy people live seven to ten years longer than unhappy people. So when I meet people on the whole, I try to talk to them about themselves, about them, not me, because nobody's interested in you, fundamentally. That was one of my dilemmas with the book. I felt, oh God, I've got an obligation to make this book entertaining because I'm breaking my cardinal rule. Don't talk about yourself. Did you become your father when you became a father? Because I parent in many ways the opposite way which I was parent, and I knew my father loved me dearly. He just never said it. He was of that generation. And I'm pretty much the generation probably of your kids. So I've decided with my own children that I'll be the complete opposite of that. And I tell him I love them all the time, something that he never did. So when you became a parent, did you become him or did you change? No, I don't think I did. I think my father and mother didn't need to tell me they loved me. You know that famous poem by... Philip Larkin, with the unfortunate opening line, but it's a brilliant opening line. I do a version of that that goes like this. They tuck you up, your mum and dad. My parents tucked me up. They read me stories. They gave me my love of language. They gave me my sense of security. They gave me a sense of self-worth that was absurd because they thought I was a golden child. I had three older sisters and I was this golden boy that came along 10 years later. And they gave me the, they made me think I could do anything, which is why in life I've tried to do everything and anything because my parents, bless them, uh, thought that I could. I didn't need to be told by them that they loved me. And in fact, I don't remember them either of them ever saying that they loved me. I wouldn't have needed that from them. And I don't think particularly that uh, I have said that to my children, but they know it. By the way, we live. We know who we are. I mean, one of the reasons I I've written the book, in fact, I wanted to call it, publishers thought better, I wanted to call it, I hope there is a heaven. And the publisher said, well, I don't know what that's about. Odd boy out, that's what you are. Call it that. Odd boy out, that's good. I wanted to call it, I hope there is a heaven, because by the time I finished it, I really wanted, I really hoped there was a heaven because I had written about people, and not just my parents, but lots of interesting, famous people, uh, and I wanted them to know how much they were valued, and they may not have realised it. So, uh, obviously, I hope there is a heaven, and I hope there's a library. Well, if there is a heaven, it will be full of books, because otherwise it wouldn't be heaven, would it? Um, uh, so, uh, if there is a heaven, and I hope there is, it will be full of books, and my father will be able to uh, read my book, and he will then see that, in fact, I fulfilled, uh, because I discovered when writing this book, this is a fascinating thing, I never asked my parents any personal questions about them at all. And towards the end of her life, when my mother was in her 90s, she talked quite a bit about herself. Um, so I know a lot of her story. But my father didn't talk about himself at all. I knew he was unhappy at school, but he never, for example, ever mentioned his brother at all. I never heard him mention his brother's name once. And I very rarely heard him talk about his parents. Indeed, I assumed that I'd known his parents because I felt I'd seen pictures of them when I was a little boy. But when researching my book, I discovered that my grandfather, my father's father, had died before I was born. So I could never have met him. So my father didn't talk about these things, but I did discover his diaries. In fact, my, my, my sister, during lockdown, she discovered his diaries and began typing them up and sending them over to me. And I discovered that this man had been quite unhappy, particularly when he was young, and had lots of ambitions that were 
disappointing to him. Things hadn't happened the way he wanted. And I realized that I, and indeed my children between us, have managed to fulfill all my father's ambitions for himself. That's, in a way, why the book is a gift for him. Let's go through the objects with your first object, Giles, which is some hair restorer. Uh, Victorian? Very much Victorian. When researching Odd Boy Out, I discovered more and more about interesting members of my family, and one of whom I knew about, but I didn't know much about him. He was a man called George R. Sims. George R. Sims was a Victorian and Edwardian journalist, writer, playwright. He was the Alan Akeborn of his day. One stage, he had three shows running in the West End of London. He was the Piers Morgan of his day, in that he was a popular journalist, controversial. He was a personality, well-known. He had a column in the newspaper for many years called Mustard and Cress. He was a boulevardier, had an affair with a famous actress called Mrs. Patrick Campbell. He was three times married himself to different actresses. They all died. I hope there's something mysterious going on there. They all died. Uh, he never divorced them. Uh, maybe he loved them to death. They were all in their sort of 20s. Um, they were all in their 20s, even when he was in his 20s, 30s, 40s. They still stayed in their 20s. And uh, he made all this money. And he wrote pantomimes for Drury Lane. He was also a social reformer. He was a poet as well. He wrote ballads, of which the only famous one is the one that begins, It was Christmas Day in the Workhouse. And you may even know that phrase, It was Christmas Day in the Workhouse. It's a Victorian ballad about the plight of people in the workhouses. And he wrote a book about, really, the life of the London poor. So this extraordinary phenomenon, the highest-paid journalist of his day, this playwright, he had some ups and downs, and he was this celebrated personality. And he went bald, unfortunately. But he created, before he went bald, this uh, hair restorer, this liquid hair restorer called Tacho. Tacho was an anagram of the name Chatto. He was published by Chatto, as in Chatto and Windus. The original Chatto published this man, George R. Sims. So he rearranged the letters in Chatto, came up with Tacho, produced this hair restorer, marketed it, lost a fortune because it didn't work and because people could see that he was bald. My wife, for my 50th birthday, managed to find a bottle of Tacho, which she gave me, and I have used the hair restorer, and it clearly doesn't work because I too have a bald patch on top. But the reason I bring my hair restorer to the table is that here was this jobbing journalist, this hack merchant, and he, in a way, my life is a paler version of his life. And it's a reminder, too, because he was hugely famous. He was a household name, the highest-paid journalist of his day. He had all these this wonderful, glorious life, and yet you haven't heard of him. When he wrote that poem, The, the uh, Christmas Day in the Workhouse, people suggested that when Alfred Lord Tennyson died, he, George R. Sims, should be the next poet laureate. He was that famous. And 120 years on, nobody has heard of him. So when I was writing my book, I thought, yes, well, my life's a bit like yours, George R. Sims. I'm doing all the things you did, not quite as successfully. And 120 years from now, nobody will know who I am either. But maybe they'll come to a, a, a costume museum and they'll find a threadbare jumper. And they'll say, well, now that was somebody who wore funny jumpers. 
on television in the 20th and 21st century. This is all that remains of him now, this woolly jumper. Well, what if they find your second object, a green carnation? What would the story be behind that and its inclusion here on the Penguin Podcast? The reason it's here on the Penguin Podcast is when I was 12, I asked for my 12th birthday for a copy of the complete works of Oscar Wilde. And I became completely fascinated by Oscar Wilde. And famously, Oscar Wilde wore a green carnation. He wore it to the opening of a play, so he'd been noticed. That's the reason he wore it. He had members of the cast wear green carnations too. He had a few members of the audience wear them, and people thought, what's this all about? What is the green carnation? Is it a secret society? What does it mean? All it meant is, you're noticing, we're wearing green carnations. So I put a green carnation into this complete works of Oscar Wilde, and that green carnation, uh, 60 years later, is still in the complete works of Oscar Wilde. And I became fascinated by him because I went to a school called Beedales in Hampshire that I write about in the book, which was founded by a man called John Badley, B-A-D-L-E-Y. And Mr. Badley was alive when I was at the school in the 1960s. He was by then 100 years of age. He died age 102. And I knew this man. I used to play Scrabble with this old man every Wednesday afternoon at school. He lived in a little cottage adjacent to the sanatorium, and I would go and play Scrabble with him, and I would talk when I was sort of in my early teens, to this old gentleman who was 100 years of age. And he always won the Scrabble games. I said, Mr. Badley, you're always winning. I said, you know why? Because you're using all these words that I don't know. They're obsolete. He said they were current when I learned them. And he was a delightful person. And he told me about Oscar Wilde because he'd been a friend of Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde's eldest son, Cyril, was sent to this school. You're talking to a fellow who knew a man who knew Oscar Wilde. So I've shaken the hand that shook the hand that wrote The Importance of Being Earnest. And what was interesting to me about knowing this man is because I was a schoolboy, he never mentioned the scandal to me. He was the former headmaster of the school. He was 100 years old. I was a 13, 14-year-old. He never talked about the imprisonment of Oscar Wilde or the fact that Oscar Wilde was imprisoned for gross indecency, for homosexual acts, which at the time I was at school would still have been illegal. He never mentioned any of that. He talked about Oscar Wilde as the wittiest person he'd ever known, as a family man. And our blight when we come to Oscar Wilde, I'm the president of the Oscar Wilde Society, is that we look at him through the prism of his downfall. And yet, of course, his downfall only began when he was in his 40s. The first 40 years of his life, he was this golden, extraordinary, remarkable human being. And I was lucky enough to be introduced to Oscar Wilde before his downfall. And I feel very blessed for that because he was, well, his gift for language was extraordinary. He was the most remarkable, one of the most remarkable writers there has ever been. He wrote the best play, I think, written in the English language in the 19th century. And he inspired my novels, which were really a sort of kind of serial biography of Oscar Wilde, My Murder Mysteries. He's a literary hero. George R. Sims is my hack hero. Oscar Wilde is my hero for fine writing. I wish I had his way with words. So then, is your military hero Field Marshal Montgomery, considering that is your third object? When I was a boy at school, I interviewed famous people at school. I wrote to them out of the blue and said, can I interview you? 
And uh, the first, well, actually, the first interview I did was with the uh, vicar at the local church. But the second interview I did with was, wait for it, with the president of Switzerland. I read that the Aga Khan had never given a personal interview. So I wrote to the Aga Khan in Paris and said, would you give me an interview? I hear you've never given an interview. And because he, I, I interviewed the Aga Khan in Paris, and I arrived there, and there were hundreds of people at the airport. And I thought, well, who are these people? Turned out they were waiting not for me, but for Ho Chi Minh, who was coming to Paris on the same day. So I wrote to the great wartime general, Field Marshal Montgomery. I wanted to know what qualities he believed a young person needed to succeed in life. Um, could I come and meet him? And uh, would he tell me? And he wrote back saying, no, you wouldn't meet me. But if you want to know what qualities you need to succeed in life, here they are. And he listed them on this letter. One, moral courage. Always do what you believe to be right. Two, complete integrity. No lies, no deceptions, honesty and transparency. Three, ceaseless hard work. And then repeat Ceaseless hard work. Yours, etc. Montgomery of Alamein, comma, FM for Field Marshal. I have kept the letter, as you can imagine. And indeed, <laughs> I do my best to live by the advice. Let's take an opportunity now to listen to an extract from your memoirs. I was going to be an actor. Somehow, by the time I was ten, my parents had found me an agent, and a good agent too. He was based in a block of flats on the corner of Oxford Street and Wardour Street at the north end of Soho. His name was Landor. I don't remember much about him, except that he made it clear he was either going to make me or drop me. He would give it a year. I would visit him once a week on a Thursday afternoon after school. I'd take the tube to Piccadilly Circus and then cut through to Wardour Street. I enjoyed walking along Wardour Street. The film companies had their offices there, and as I passed the windows, I looked out for the posters advertising the forthcoming pictures. Films that might star Nicholas Goodliffe's dad, or Michael Redgrave. Ma and I had spotted one of his daughters at the dentist's. Or John Mills, the father of Juliet Mills, my Alice in Wonderland. Walking through Soho, I knew that the women I passed on the way, standing in groups of two or three in doorways or at street corners, always smoking, often laughing, were prostitutes, but I had no idea what that meant. Because I was on my way to my agent, and because of where they were and how they were displaying themselves, I sensed that they too were part of the entertainment industry. I liked that. Mr. Landor told me I needed two audition pieces. I suggested a bit of puck from A Midsummer Night's Dream. Good idea, he said. And for your modern piece, how about the schoolboy Taplow from Terence Rattigan's play The Browning Version? Did you see the film with Michael Redgrave? I hadn't, but I visited French's theatre bookshop and found the play and learnt the scene he wanted. Week after week, I made my way down Wardour Street to meet Mr. Landor, to run through my audition pieces for him. My puck amused him, my tableau he found effective, and to hear that nothing has come up yet, but it will. And one week, it did. An English picture, said Mr. Landor, smiling. Good director. He did Ice Cold and Alex with John Mills. This is another film with Mills, but set in South Wales. It's about a young boy who witnesses a murder. Quite dark, lovely script. You'll be the boy. John Mills is the detective. They've seen your photograph, Giles. 
They liked the look of you. I went to the audition, and I gave it my all. But I didn't get the part. For the first time in my life, I was conscious of failure. I lost the part, I lost the agent, and I left home, all within the space of a few weeks. That was a reading from Odd Boy Out, the autobiography of Giles Brandreth, and it's read by the man himself. A link to the audiobook edition can be found in the programme notes of this episode. And while we're doing the admin, don't forget to follow the Penguin podcast. Comment, rate, and most of all, share. You can also find us on all your Alexa-enabled devices. And so, to your final object, Giles, which I think combines two of your passions, Shakespeare and teddy bears. (laughs) It certainly does. It's a little William Shakespeare teddy bear. Uh, My wife and I founded, we used to have a house in Stratford-upon-Avon, and we founded the Teddy Bear Museum in Stratford, and it was there for 25 years. And it's now moved. It's now at Newby Hall in North Yorkshire. And I've got a thousand or more bears. I love them. Um, It's another example of me never even escaped my my childhood. And I had a bear called Growler. I love the teddy bear because it's the first, it was actually, funny enough, it's the first unisex toy uh, dolls were always associated with girls, and boys had sort of swords and guns in Victorian times, toy guns. And when the teddy bear came along at the turn of the 20th century, it became a universally popular toy. I'm fascinated by, by bears and the magic that they bring. We had this teddy bear museum, and Trudy Dench agreed to become the artistic director of our Royal Shakespeare Company. We thought, let's create a little Shakespeare Company. And so we thought, oh, let's make, make a William Shakespeare and he'll, what plays will he write? Well, he'll write King Bear, Muck Bear, The Merry Bears of Windsor. And then as an alternative production, we did a, a version of Romeo and Paddington. It was a bit controversial, but there we are. We did it and got away with it. So the teddy bear is a teddy bear. But William Shakespeare is everything to me. The joy of, of William Shakespeare, being in the same world as William Shakespeare, is that if you're a writer, nothing else matters. Because you never get to me. It doesn't matter at all. What we do, it does not matter at all. We all strive. We mean so well. We're so excited. I remember still my first book, my se- all my books, when they come, I-, I love the end papers. I love the smell of the paper. I love opening it. I love the feel of it, the excitement. I mean, seeing your name on the title page, it's all wonderful. But it's nothing. We're nothing. I just marvel at Shakespeare. And I love the fact that we know so little about him. I love the fact that we know so little about him when he knew everything about us. And for me, there's always a moment. I I go to a Shakespeare play and it always happens. There's a moment, uh, usually about four-fifths of the way through, that cathartic moment when the tears begin to well up. And there is a moment in your life you think, yes, I haven't necessarily been following it all, but it's happened. There's a magic. That man is magic. Before we sadly have to say goodbye, we always ask our guests about a recent book that they have absolutely loved. What was the last book you couldn't put down, Giles, or currently the one that's right next to your bed? I do have a book permanently on my bedside. It's called Dancing by the Light of the Moon, and it's an anthology of poetry to learn by heart. And I read a poem before I go to sleep. Every night I read a poem. Sometimes I only read a verse of a poem, but I I go to sleep with a different poet every night. And I think last night I read a poem by Walter de la Mer. And I'll end with this, quite a sweet story. Walter de la Mer, do you know his poetry? 
The listeners? Did not, he did no. a marvellous anthology. Rediscovery him. He's a sort of unfashionable English poet from the first half of the 20th century. Did a wonderful anthology of poetry himself called Come Hither. Older listeners will remember it. Anyway, he was an amusing man. And when he was ill in the 1920s, his daughter, his younger daughter, went to visit him in hospital. And um, as she was leaving, she said, Oh, Father, um, can I, you know, can I get you something? Do you want, um, you know, is there something you want? Fruit? Flowers? And in a very weak voice from the bed, he said, It's too late for fruit and too soon for flowers. That's me. Too late for fruit, too soon for flowers. I'm still here. And you are firing on all ah. cylinders. It has been a pleasure to spend an hour in your company, Charles. Amazing. Really is. Well, I hope you enjoy the book. If you listen to the book on audio, you'll probably hear my voice cracking occasionally because I'd never read a book that was autobiographical before, out loud. And I found it quite uh, quite an interesting experience. So I think the book probably is more personal than I realised when I was writing it. Charles Brandreth, thank you very much. <laughs> 